You're listening to the Manufacturing Ignition podcast. Keep updated with the latest news, recruitment advice, and hot topics within the UK manufacturing industry. Sponsored by Bonfire Recruitment, helping manufacturing leaders across the UK to attract the best talent for their manufacturing company. Ignite your business or career today by visiting www.bonfirerecruitment.com. Here's your hosts, Terry Mallin and Scott Buchanan. This week, latest news within manufacturing sector across the UK. Scott, over to you. Thanks, Terry. Well, this week um, in December, it looks like car makers are driving the longest period of manufacturing growth within the UK since, I think, since the year you were born, Terry, 1994. Is that fair? Um, uh-huh, that's, I, I was 1996, Scott. You're getting it wrong again, you know. You wish. <laughs> um, apparently, automotive and pharmaceutical output is soaring. But mining and energy and construction, if you um, from, from that industry, are dragging down the total industrial production, um, says the Office of National Statistics. So, Britain's okay. car factories are that are helping drive the country's manufacturing production to its longest period of growth in more than twenty years. Which for me, hearing that is incredible. You know, twenty years, Terry. That's just um, you would not relate that. Uh, you know, if you listen to any of the, the news that you see, you know, or hear, there's not really too much positivity coming out. So 20 years worth of, you know, the, the biggest growth within that period is incredible. Yeah, no, I find that interesting, Scott, because obviously transport manufacturing is a is a big sector, you know, in the UK. Um, not as big up, up north in Scotland, but certainly down south. Um, and, you know, we probably don't hear about it enough unless we're, unless we're dealing with our particular clients that we work with. But I know the likes of so your Nissan, your Jaguar Land Rover, Aston Martin, you know, they they should all be posting reasonable numbers this year, uh, off the back of what that article said. Yeah, and re- reading here, it, it, apparently the last time that manufacturers stick together an unbroken run of five months was from December two thousand and three. 13 rather, um, to, to May in the following year. So, you know, that that's it's, it's really good news for, for what's going on. And I guess leading on to the next part of the news, whereby I think it's it's how long this, this you know, the, the, the growth factor will be there because of what's happening with the, the, the political situation and uh, with, with okay. Brexit. All right. So, so kind of leading on to that, um, I was reading a, an article as a chap, Austin Mitchell, um, was writing a, a note in the the Guardian. I don't know if you you you're a an avid Guardian reader, Terry. You look that you, you look that person now. No, I've, see see see. Um, no, the answer's no. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what Austin was saying right is, um, and apparently he's a, he's a former Labour MP for for Grimsby, which is as you know is quite a it was a heart of of manufacturing. Actually, there's a lot of lot of uh, good good factories down in Grimsby, but. Um, he he was highlighting the fact that actually that they need to rebalance the economy and that Brexit is just a distraction to the real problems. Um, and if if you go on and on and read, he's taught the idea that um, that we consume more than what we produce, leading to an annual balance of payment deficit rising above six percent of GDP. Um, so everything's been okay. and, and that means that the manufacturing sector has shrunk to one tenth of GDP. Um, which is, is is almost pathetic. Um, so, so Scott, let me get this right then. So, with regards to he's saying Brexit is a distraction, but there's bigger problems, and that bigger problem is in the basis of there's there's more demand than what we can supply potentially in the future. 
Yeah, what you're saying is that the solution is to, to rebalance an economy excessively dependent on finance and, finance and services um, by, by widening the manufacturing production base and making it more competitive. Do you see? So I, I, th- I think in essence he suggested that all the, you know, the investment, and we touched on this last week, um, around you know the, the, the manufacturing um, is not getting the, 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 the companies within manufacturing are not getting investment to, to their hands, and this kind of ties in with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and putting putting everything together actually over the past couple of podcasts, Scott, obviously there's there's other ways for manufacturing businesses to be more productive, um, using sort of latest technology that's out there. You know, more automation. And, you know, that can only help with regards to you know, the increase in demand in the future as well, because if factories are more productive and operating more efficiently and the output's a lot higher, yeah, you know, then, then aye, okay, okay, I get that, right, okay, interesting. Yeah, and then to kind of tie in with that political point, um, it looks like UK manufacturers are pushing um, Prime Minister, the the beautiful Theresa May, to give them a key role in the, the actual Brexit negotiations so they can defend the interests of business as Britain leaves the European Union. You've, you've probably seen on the news, Terry, there's a lot going on around, um, the, the, I guess, how, how we're all going to work together or not I guess and um, to, be, to be honest Scott I've not listened to a word you just said there I just heard you saying the beautiful <laughs> Theresa May and I'm sitting in ho- I'm, in, I'm in shock so I've, 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 I didn't even hear what you said after that do you not have a, a printout over beside your desk as well I'm sure it was you that I saw with a printout no, no you, um, you've, you've said this before you says I've got a printout of you next to my desk I've got a, <laughs> a, a that should be a three-point printout. Um, but no, so to me, yeah, I think that the, the chief exec of the, the manufacturing lobby group, EEF, um, has okay. said that because of the complexity and the integrated supply chains that we've got, it's really important that business sit alongside government in working out the details. So that, you know, in, in his world, you know, in an ideal world, nothing would change for business. And I think his point must be, you know, there's there's plenty of banks, I'm sure, are working closer with the government. But actually, what, you know, how close is the government at the moment to working with, um, you know, manufacturing industry across the board? irrelevant of sector um i know they're working to a point with the big ones well i guess you understand that with what we've read in the news with the automotive piece but uh, you know what about the food economy the drink economy the sme manufacturers that are coming through the ranks yeah i think there's there's certainly um work to be done so um yeah i'll get you i'll get you a picture of Theresa may in the post for you no, no worries i'll make sure you've got okay Okay, thanks very much. Um, I have no, have, moving on to the some some um, food news, Scott. Some <laughs> food manufacturing news. So, obviously, we're running the run up to Christmas. We're two weeks out, uh, less than two weeks now, and actually, it's scary. Actually, it's like a week and a half. I need to get my Christmas shopping done. So, the co-op and I, I did see on social media, Aldi as well are going to donate. Uh, so, firstly, the, the co-op's going to donate 100,000 meals over the Christmas period uh, to vulnerable people uh, in the run-up to Christmas. Uh, so, that's that's very positive news. And I know Aldi put out something on social media where what they're looking to do is once the, all their stores close at 4 o'clock on Christmas Eve, right. any stock that they've got, they'll give away for free um, that's not been sold. So, literally, you could go to Aldi and, you know, whatever's going to be, I'm guessing, going to be out of date at some point and, Couple yeah, of days, then Christmas period, that'll be yeah, right. they're going to give it out. Which I thought, do you want to know what? Hats off, that's great. That's you know, 
these things would, you know, talking about eliminate, uh, you know, helping the local communities, um, you know, well, using products that are potentially going to waste. I think it's very easy for, for you know, certainly for us to forget, I'm sure others, whereby, you know, we, we, we you know, hopefully get a nice warm house and, um, you know, some good food to eat. And actually it's, um, you know, there can be food sitting in exactly that in a supermarket or similar where, you know, no one's using it. And, and actually, you know, it, it probably will be chucked out because no one will probably want it after the, the Christmas period anyway. So that's really quite you know, forward thinking with these was that the co-op and uh, Aldi was it, Terry? Yeah, yeah. So Aldi's you know, uh, closing their doors at four or whatever it is in Christmas Eve, and, and the co-op is donating actually a hundred thousand meals over that period. But I know the co-op does a lot of work throughout the year, so it's not just focused on sort of Christmas. But you know, the end of the day, these uh, these gestures and, and and support to local communities go a long, long way. So yeah, hats off to. to both those particular businesses. I'm sure there'll be other businesses that are involved, but those two uh, are the two that's kind of stood out to me in the last week on this on the sort of latest news. And and you remember we were talking about the the awards, Scott. We do like an award ceremony, Terry. Yeah, we do, we do, we do. And 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 I know that I know in a couple of the podcasts I've mentioned uh, the Young Talent Award is within food manufacturing and the same name keeps popping up, which is Cody Gledhill, who works for Coca-Cola. So actually, I noticed back up in the news again, you know, back from, I think she won an award for the Food Manufacturing Excellence Awards in in London back in November. And I did a wee bit of research. I was like, well, why, why, you know, how does this person, you know, been nominated for this amount of awards and had such a success over the year? Right. And it's in a very, very competitive field, as you would you would, uh, as you know, anyway, Scott, you know, one of the big things, so Cody Gledhill is a year free electrical engineer working for Coca-Cola, made a big contribution to an automation project that Coca-Cola were driving. And that actually saved seven tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions wow. uh, and £14,000 over four years. So very environmentally focused. But what most importantly that the judges were impressed was uh, was her positive attitude, the eagerness to learn, uh, and then combined with obviously that track record of improving efficiency within manufacturing, but kind of putting all that together, that's why this person is actually standing head and shoulders above the rest at the minute from uh, the young talent out there in the manufacturing sector. So the key thing is, you know, for uh, business leaders that are listening, is to... You know, a lot of the guys are, 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 and, and I'll be giving people a lot of opportunity, young people, but actually make sure that they've got projects that can bring the best out in them and give them the training, development, support, and then actually in the end, nominating these people for these awards, you know, it's, it can only do good for your business and more importantly for that person's career. Uh, it's always good to get that sort of self-satisfaction. Very much so. I think I think it's, it's a valid point, Terry. I think most people that are passionate about you know what what they're involved in, they, they want to do a good job. And you know if it's if it's such a, an innovative idea and that's the thought process, then it, it's helping. It's, you know in that case, it's potentially helping the you know the, the world and from an environmental perspective. And to be associated with that, it's, it's great news. Um, yeah, no yeah, worries. So, all positive. So, so kind of wrapping up that then, Scott, uh, this week, guys, seems quite interesting. Some interesting news out there. I know things will be quieting down in the next week, but we'll look to gather as much information for podcast 
This week's manufacturing ignition hot topic is problems with 3D printing. And this closely follows what we covered last week on episode seven, in which we discussed the benefits of 3D printing within your manufacturing company. So all, all we've kind of noticed in the news is, is all the positive aspects of 3D printing, how it can benefit your business. So what me and Scott have decided to tackle head on is what problems is, is there with 3D printing? So this will be quite interesting, Scott. As you know, it's been quite a week for both of us, in fairness. So I'd like to say I've been studying this late at night. But um, yeah, I think um, one of the things that seems to be pretty common with 3D printing is the is the same issue I've had with printing, which is related to, you know, I guess the cartridges that that, that, that you would use. And, and, and I think it seems to be called the filament reel within 3D printing. Yeah, it's like a plastic. I think it's like a, it's like a fishing line, I think it is. I think that's what it looks like from my understanding. I've got one in front of me, actually, but it's boxed to go out to a supplier. But the it looks like fishing line, I think. And, you know, you, you have to, it's the same as ink. Aye. within your own printer so i guess that in there that must be the technique i guess of making sure it's at the right you know the right you know that the, the nozzle is too close to the print bed um and making sure that the that you know that the nozzle is also open and the depth of it is, is correct as well so that i guess where, where i thought and, and maybe you want to speak to the the, the people that we, we gave the 3d printers over to actually for the for the competition we did actually yeah. getting some feedback on how easy is it to work? Because I, I would have assumed, you know, you, you, you buy one, you put in the relevant design coordinates um, and, and away you go. But um, reading yeah, between... Yeah, I, I think it's a wee bit more... Dif- uh, but it will be more difficult than that. And I've done a wee bit of research on it because I was actually going to buy one myself, do you know that? But as I said last week, but I've not. Um, but I will do. I will do. They're rather expensive. But yeah, I mean, looking at it, you hook it up to your PC, you put your design into the PC and hit go and that design's then made now that brings on another problem quite interestingly uh, the ip the ip and licensing um, (laughs) of products right so back in january um it was a 3d system acquired by a company called gentle giant limited right Mm -hmm. and they own all the licensing rights to toy franchises like the hobbit the walking dead harry potter alien and star wars right (laughs) So you can imagine this time of year that actually what people are using it in a sort of black market is actually to to replicate these say toy toy dolls and toy plastic figurines and they can actually replicate that on a 3D printer and then sell it obviously as the genuine article which it's not. So that can open up a whole new you know, privacy situation uh, with copyright, trademarks, legal complications, you know. Think about, you know, what's happened in, you know, any logo that could be printed onto, I don't know, a T-shirt, a jumper, you know, any form of, you know, dodgy, you know, copy, um, I guess, can can be done now. So I guess now that you can do this in a 3D model situation, then anything. Um, yeah. You, know, you, could, you could literally create anything now. So, aye, no. That's interesting. And, and another another couple, Scott, that kind of stood out to me just when we were talking, because I was kind of thinking about this actually in the car on the way back from the vet. One, obviously, I think about how much heat these things would potentially, you know, if you've got a PC in the office, if you feel the PC, it's hot. You know, the amount of heat that the, this, these bits of kit would, would be exerting within a manufacturing uh, environment, you know, so and they would be taking a lot of energy, a lot, a lot of electricity, 
to mm-hmm. to Actually, you know, body. and then Aye. yeah, but combining that, there's got to be some unhealthy air emissions as well that comes out. So you know, you have to you know, there's got to be a, a bit of research done into you know how the emissions affect the air and how that would be within a manufacturing environment for people working there. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things. And I can only assume it's the same same with 3D printing, whereby that you know I don't know how many generations worth of 3D printer we've gone through to get to you know the stage we're at. Um, but I would assume you know there's an element of efficiency will naturally creep in with this as part of of the redesign you know that that will be going on. But whether or not that that then leads to an efficient and the actual you know whether companies can do that but you you had a, a valid point on a pro version of you know of 3d printing last week around you know you actually you know what was it ford was going to design that that or did they do create yeah. models of that the, the casing the mold yeah, yeah the mold yeah so yeah. you know when, when you've got that kind of scale and um you know the actual efficiency of it so you you make a model you know, that way, which is, takes whatever length of time it does to do that, versus all the, the energy of doing it the old-fashioned way, I guess, the efficiency is still probably greater um, using 3D printing than it that would have been without it. Yeah, and I, I think I think what, what I'm probably more getting to is, you know, if we're having the, you know, looking at investing in big bits of kit with these 3D printers for our manufacturing companies is, on the basis of actually all the health and safety is covered round about it, whether that be emissions, heat off it, because I'm guessing, you know, if it's hot enough, you'd have to have some sort of guards, you know, and then that brings in, you know, if these things break down as well, you've got to have the right type of engineers on site who can work with these bits of kit, which I'm guessing, you know, it's not rocket science, but literally if, if these bits of kit are connected as well through the, the cloud of things, then, then actually... You know, you need to make sure that actually that everything's done in the right way, and these things can be maintained and uh, fixed if they break down as well. More, more than just bit spanners, and you know, this is then you're talking about more network issues and connectivity problems. So it's going to it's going to require a different set of skill set and people mm-hmm. to, to to join businesses as well. So it's going to be another investment on top of the printer. Yeah, and I, I don't know how desirable a three D printing you know engineer. You know, job versus I don't know. You know the the other modern you know cloud based roles that are kicking about now. You know how you know how, how viable it will be. You know and, and how long you're going to have to wait for your three D printer to get fixed. Um, that's, yeah, that's or installed, even installed and commissioned. You know, and and getting up to speed and running, going through tests and trials. Here's here's an interesting. One. I'm going to throw in a curveball, right? Because we've been talking about sort of making plastics and metal and whatever else. Mm-hmm. But there is a possibility of 3D printed drugs to be uh, to made, right? Right. right. So um, a researcher, well, well, the whole purpose of it would be, right, so there was a researcher at the uh, University of Glasgow. They, they, they created a prototype of a 3D computer. That's what they call it, right? A computer. Chem- right. I'm guessing chemical <laughs> computer or whatever. But that, that, that makes drugs and medicines. Now, the purpose of it, is actually to allow patients to print their own medicines with a chemical blueprint that they get from the pharmacy. So you go to your doctor, you get this prescription, you can then print your own. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but right, okay, so we're talking about the problems with 3D printing here. Now, the funny thing is, and of course this is a very long way off, right, mm-hmm. but actually people who have been watching the likes of like your Breaking Bad, etc., making homemade drugs, 
like class A drugs, you know. So actually, there's it could enable DIY chemists like that to create their own uh, A class class A drugs to sell, you know, like whatever that might be, you know. So and, and maybe design yeah. their new drugs as well. Do you know what I mean they could actually? Yeah, don't know if you've ever followed, you know, made a cake or made a recipe. Do you know that way you, you decide to? Do you know what? I'll throw some of you know whatever it is in. Aye, that's going to, oh my goodness, that's getting... Yeah, so so that's something completely um, different. So there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different uh, aspects. Have you, have you noticed any, Scott? Have you seen anything? Well, just, anything just, just before we move on, isn't that what we would call then more like a food mixer? Do you know what I mean? What's the difference between a 3D printer there than a, you know, than actually <sighs> chemical mixing of... Well, that's a good point, because we, we're, kind, we're kind of thinking, when I think of 3D printing, I think of... Exactly what I just said there about the see the wee plastic models that you would buy. So like a Star Wars character, Luke Skywalker, you can make that in yeah. your house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Theresa May, John Major, whoever you want, right? you can make them in your house. <laughs> oh, you're throwing me off tangent here, right? So anyway, uh, but actually the, the funny thing is, imagine you could make your own dinner. Sunday roast a 3D printer I know <laughs> but then how disappointed and maybe this is the point right one of the things you touched on Star Wars there one of the things when I was a kid I remember looking at Star Wars thinking do you, do you mean I don't even know what one it is whether it's Return of the Jedi or another one where they end up in this smelly pit on the on the spaceship, I don't know what the spaceship's called, but they they find themselves in a really smelly place and they're all rubbing their noses and so on. And I thought and this must have been thirty years ago, easily. I'm going, oh, wouldn't it be great? To, I don't know. You hit a button on the telly and you could actually smell, you know, what what the, the television folk are, are smelling at the same time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have seen. I think people have tried yeah, to do that though. I think I think that's. I mean, what I, I remember, Scott, what they were trying to do was they had some sort of say, like some sort of smoke machine at the back of your telly, and right. and what so they would do is the ambience of wherever they were, right? Yeah, exactly. That's quite. A, but that, but then that's that's taking things to another new level. And have you noticed anything else in the three D printing that could be possibly well, a problem? One of the things I was, and this is probably my my, my Scottishness coming out again, whereby. What about the price of them, Terry? I mean, they're, they're not exactly... Um, you, you can't really pick them up that easily. Well, uh, well, actually, cost of printer versus quality of, you know, what's the hassle factor worth? Do you know that way? Um, and the other question... But I think... Is actually, if you go and buy yourself a brilliant, you know, a top of the range almost, you know, HP printer or, you know, Canon printer, now just a normal typical printer, but actually the cost isn't the printer. It's the, it's the, the cost of the ink is, 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 is what mm-hmm. than actually the cost of the product. So how, how much does it cost to run these things versus, uh, and, yeah. and, and I, I Googled them, um, I was on Tech Radar Pro. This, this time I've done the 10 best 3D printers of 2017. And the price between, okay. you know, kind of £3,000 and a tenner. <laughs> it would so £10 for a 3D printer? £10 for a Cube Pro Trio, which is the best. <laughs> there you go. You can get a, a Cube Pro Trio, best for three colour, three material printing and an incredible price. What can you make on a blue tack or something? You can make um, <laughs> a paper clip. Me, um, 
the bulk <laughs> uh, what, you know, so yeah, it's a valid point. You know, it's an ideal solution for modelers and engineers who need to create three D prints with moving parts. Uh, I mean, I'm uh, looking for a chocolate block. <laughs> put it in there. I need to stick some wires together. Right, what about if you went and get yourself a Lizbot Taz Six? You know, very fast printing, wide support for materials, but you know, minuses. Yeah, it's expensive, two thousand one hundred pounds, right? Or, and it's also not the most reliable. <laughs> so, what, what, what chance have you got? You go and spend your two grand, mm. and uh, you know, let's let's print the the, the super size Theresa May, and uh, it doesn't actually it doesn't work. Yeah, I'm just having a wee look. I mean, I mean, have you done any research into the cost for manufacturing companies? Scott, they're buying a big. A big the one, um, saw, industrial the one I saw last week, it, you know, it was it was serious money, wasn't it? it was at ten? It was like thirty grand or something. I saw one. Yeah, I saw. yeah, no, yeah, and, and and add on another uh, zero on that as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, there's one that I was that I'm looking at at the minute. So three thousand four hundred seventy-eight pounds, complete package, your three D printer. It looks all right, you know, but literally what the the kind of image they've got is making a basketball hoop which you know for three and a half grand I could probably I could probably go to um, Argos buy a basketball hoop for <laughs> 20 pounds and everybody's happy I've still got the same end result you're missing the, 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 the point of that though Terry um, you, you, you don't get the fun out of making the basketball hoop you know what I mean that's just uh, yeah so the filming how much is the filming Scott no idea. Genuinely, don't know. Um, okay, I'm, I'm having a wee look. I've just googled it. So to see, yeah. I mean, this is guys. What we're talking about is home use, right? Commercial home use. That me, you can buy, and it is like fishing line. That's what it looks like. So what it will do? It'll feed into the three D printer. I'm guessing that'll heat it up, melt it, and then it'll work its way into whatever uh, model or whatever you want to make. But looking at this, so for 1.75 metres of this, so this is a one kilogram wood filament, for which is a natural wood colour, is £20. £16.81. That's half okay. price. Doesn't sound it's not shabby. Yeah, but then probably the question, Scott, would be how much does 1.75 metres, uh, what does that actually make? Does it make a paper clip or does it make you a George Foreman, you know? Uh, uh, what's the what's the sort of like, you know how much do you need to put in? But it did, you know eBay's get quite a lot on it. I mean even Curry's is selling it. Curry's clicking collect. So common now. It almost you know it was you that was that was talking about this a few weeks ago, and um, I'm amazed. I always thought it was you know it would be maybe the universities that would be using this kind of technology. Or I used to play rugby with a, a guy who that's what he did actually is probably I wonder I'll need to catch up with him because he was actually a, a model maker so his job was actually to work with companies to create you know hand models of what, what their products were so I wonder how, how he's getting on because that's um, this job that you know well, this um, product I'll, I'll kill that I would have thought yeah 100% I mean I'm literally Curry's have got advertised a Polaroid Play 3D pen right and you can buy this pen and I mean, it shows you some ridiculous graphics of what you can build out of it for twenty pounds. I'd be surprised. It's like a there's like um what is it like a house and also some sort of you know why there's big wheels you go into the the play the the shows Scotland right. and Alton Towers and you've got the big wheel right London Eye right it's basically got an image of the London Eye in miniature scale. I mean, for twenty pounds, I don't think you'll be able to build the London Eye, but you know for twenty pounds, it'd be a good week 
stocking filler for Christmas. Uh, so that's in Curry's. Interesting. Anyway, I digress. I'm, I'm just um, just taking back at your point there. Um, I've just typed in Google 3D printing course and um, it's given me a price cost per cubic inch. All right. And the actual cost of 3D printing is directly proportional to the amount of raft and support required for each pound or kilogram you want to print. The average cost will be in the order of 0.2 to 0.8 dollars per cubic centimeter. Um, so it's about 1.3. It's about a pound per cubic inch um, is the cost of what, what it will cost to 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 make something. Um, so that doesn't seem silly, does it? You know what? But then I'm guessing it's the density of the product that you're trying to make as well. Aye. So yeah, you know, you could be making metal, you could be making, you know. So aye. Anyway, but interesting. It goes to these as a benchmark. So I, I think wrapping wrapping the 3D printing up, Scott, with regards to the problems. You know, we went went through a bit of food for thought there. Um, I think some good topics actually we'll be discussing at the end. So you know, the key things to kind of recap are. The licensing, the copyright and trademark of products and how those can be copied quite easily, potentially. There, there must be an argument against who, you know, so is it the seller, you know, that, that actually copyrights against or is it actually the owner of the 3D printer that's created the, the you know, the, 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 the fake? Um, yeah, it'll be the owner of the 3D printer that's created the fake, I would guess. But anyway. No, but I'm just thinking if you say, for example, you went and bought, you know, the three grand one or a, a decent 3D printer, and you fire in the coordinates, and then you come out with something um, that you, you know, it's a copy or something. Then, it's a bit, it's a, yeah. it's a bit crazy anyway, Scott. Because on the basis of kids are getting three D printers for Christmas, they want to print off Bella or whatever she's called for Frozen. They want to print off whoever, you know. what I mean, and actually, you know, so that is a, that, that that's quite a key one. Also, the potential heat and the energy that these type of machines would. Would uh, consume and and the possible you know air emissions that would come off it as well and the, the actual ability actually out with sort of plastic metal you know you you can potentially print uh, drugs which could open up a whole new can of worms as well so there's a lot of you know a lot of positives with 3D printing and there's also a lot of um, points to be aware of and hopefully we've went through I mean. Guys, as I said, I was, you know, I was running late today and I'm kind of, you know, I'm doing this off cuff and I've, I've left Scott to kind of pull up all the the brief that we will tend to go through. And it's typically our briefs tend to be four or five pages of notes uh, and we'll chat through it. Scott's did a brief today, 78 pages. <laughs> <laughs> and I had five minutes to read over it. 78 pages. And, that, and, and 75 of them were on 3D printing, so... If anybody wants any information, contact Scott at scott at bonfirerecruitment.com. Yeah, there's, um, there's plen- plenty of technical jargon that you said two minutes before we started that we uh, we probably don't want to go down at that level of detail. So, yeah, anyone needs yeah. Some, some some tech detail, we've got it here. Okay, <laughs> so I think, I, think, I think that closes off the hot topic this week on the problems with 3D printing. And in this week's manufacturing ignition recruitment advice, we're going to go through, so once you've You've got the top candidates engaged in your recruitment process. How should this then be handled when you're meeting face-to-face at interview uh, with regard, regards to going through our stages before you actually make an offer? Um, Scott, what's your input on that? Yeah, well, we, we've seen the way, the method that we're, um, we've done 2017 that's proved highly successful is 
that we're finding the interviews that are conducted face to face, there's already an element of I'll use the word rapport, but certainly um, an understanding between you know the the given client and the given candidate because we have a full understanding of what the client um, is looking you know looking to achieve both from the company perspective and from the you know what they're looking for the individual to be capable of. But, but we obviously send you know the the, the CV along with a, a video interview as well. So um, when the client actually meets with the candidate. That the that there's already you know some common ground or at least a starting point. Do you know that way? So the majority of the interviews, some of the feedback that, that that we've been learning of this year has been that that that, that things move pretty quickly, and I think um, that already um, takes takes your question to a whole other level. Do you know that way? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, Scott. And and just to kind of drill into that a little bit further, you know, the main benefit. So uh, once you've engaged and you've you've struck up a conversation with the top fifteen percent, you've got the person to the point of showing an interest in a particular position with your company, and and, and they're looking to progress that further. The next natural stage that that we do is is we would then arrange a video interview. The benefit of that actually is a lot of times wasted. Both sides. Um, if you meet someone, naturally you, you you know you think this person's going to be the dream article, the perfect fit, and vice versa for that person, they think it's going to be the dream job and the perfect fit. But actually, in reality, uh, you know, after that initial you know one hour interview, you know either side might might uh, might realise that it's not. And actually, what we do is we do a video interview for all our shortlists, and and you can do this as a as a company as well, where it's a quick. 10, 15 minute video interview, we will sit down with the person, we will ask that person to go through five minutes of their background and then start, you know, asking some key questions like, you know, what's your career aspirations in the next five years? Why are you interested in this particular business? Why are you interested in this particular position? That way you get a feel for, for that person and they get a feel for you if you're doing the, the interview. Yeah. And vice versa, it's only taking up 15 minutes of your day Nobody's had to take any holidays. Um, you know, it can be done on an iPhone, it can be done on an iPad, a laptop. It's all done safely and securely. Um, you can lock the room. It's your own personal interview room. And 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 in that way, when you're, you know, if that person's actually buying into taking the time, so the candidate, they're buying into taking the time to do a video interview, you know they're not a tire kicker. They're not just looking to get some information from you, they're not just looking to scout, they're actually taking time out of their day. When they weren't looking, you engage with them, they're taking time out of their day to sit and do a video interview. So that kind of reaffirms their interest in that position. And you will get people who don't turn up for the video interview. And probably the good thing is, thankfully, we never made, a, you know, we never arranged a face to face because that that, uh, that could be completely time wasting straight away. So, yeah, yeah. So, good point, Scott. Yeah, with the video interview. Well, I think also from the client's perspective, it tends to be that the client will invite people that they, they feel, whether they do or not, it's another question, but they feel that they are relevant for the role and actually would be relevant for their team. Do you know that way? So um, the client already is um, gets their thought processes, the language that they're talking and the, the methodology of what they're, they're answering, the, you know, the relevant questions that are put to them, um, which actually could yeah. be from the client itself. You know, we, we do do it in some cases where we've got, you know, some some key questions that the client wants to be make sure is being presented to the candidate and see how the, ca- you know, the candidate reacts and it, it's all there. So, yeah, it's um, so so directly an answer to your question. You know, in terms of you know the actual interview techniques and so on. I guess it depends on you know what what the company is looking to achieve out of their interview as well. 
is a company wanting to just get an understanding of, you know, the first stage interview, ticking the boxes from the company point of view, or actually have we already done that? Do you know what we do? We want to move on yeah. to actually be we're going to bring value um, for this candidate that's potentially, you know, um, that, that isn't, you know, isn't readily available in the market. And um, we are what what value they could bring to the company. These are all the things yeah. that, that can be discussed. And exactly, and, and and another tool that we use in addition to the video interviewing is behaviour reports. And I'm sure we've all done them in the past, um, but it gives you a profile of who you potentially are. Some some can be scary, some can be quite, uh, you know, can make you feel uh, uncomfortable. You think, how did that report know me so well? Uh, in 12 questions. And, and but yeah, but you know, and, and there's all different types of tools out there. We use a specific tool, you know, use a business, we use a certain tool. But the whole purpose of it is not actually, you know, so, so, so we'll get candidates to do a behaviour report. But firstly, what we've done is actually we've got the hiring manager and, and then possibly the senior team. So say the hiring manager is a managing director of, of our business. We would get that, uh, we would ask for the hire, for the MD to, to do the behaviour test because then they will understand what the candidate's doing. We will also get as much of the senior leadership team as possible who would be peer group to do the test as well. And they can all have a laugh and joke at the reports, etc. But the, the importance of this is actually when we are submitting candidates, what we will do is the candidate will get a copy of their report, but we can actually benchmark the behaviours of that candidate against A, the hiring manager, and then B, the overall team. So you can see actually with this person's behaviour traits, you putting that into your senior leadership team, how the dynamics change within your team. Can I, you know, just let me reiterate here, this is a tool, it's not 100% accurate, it's a tool used where you can actually question people at face-to-face interview, and you can have a real open, upfront, frank conversation, you know, on the basis of, you know, if the hire manager is more reactive and likes to get things done quick, whilst actually that candidate might be the opposite and actually might be more methodical and might like, might like to take their time before coming to a decision, how they, they would feel if they were rushed in that sort of situation. It actually allows for a real free flow, open conversation to make sure that A, both the hire manager and this person can work well together and, and, and B, that this person would integrate as well as possible within their team. Why, why would I look at that? Well, the purpose is a lot of the problems that we get within recruitment and what we've seen historically within the companies is when they make a bad hire, this is, tends to be not the experience or the technical ability of a person. It's more to do with actually that person fitting within their business and their company. So we try and put all the facts and figures in front of the companies that we work with to give them as much uh, tools and understanding to to make the best the best call. And that's the best call for everybody because what, what the last thing we want is someone to hand in their notice, take three months to start a position, start the position, then within a month they realise it's not the right role for them. That leaves a sour taste in that candidate's mouth um, as they're now having to look for another role when they've left a secure role. And B, on the client side, actually, do you want to know what? We're back to the drawing boards and we might have to wait another three to six months to recruit that position and think about how much cost is involved in that and how much cost is lost as well. You know, and you can't get it right all the time. That's that's impossible. Yeah. The nature of the beast is we deal with people, you know. And it's yeah, not a product. I think an important thing to highlight, Terry, is look, we've, we believe in, in making sure that the right people get the right job for the right reasons. And I think the only way that we can be, you know, we, we can only allow that to happen by 
you know, empowering people to have the tools to do it. Yes, we've got a professional experience. Yes, I'm sure we've got a professional opinions. But actually, it's allowing, making sure that the, the, the detail and the information is there for, you know, the, the client and the candidate, you know, to, to make sure that, that, that they're aligned in, in what's achieving. And as, as, as we've seen, you know, the, the, it, it works. Do you know that way? Because at the end of the day, if the client is looking to identify this top talent and you've got a candidate that is looking to further a career in a, a company that's aligned and also they fit, correctly within the team environment or you know the senior management team environment because through um the testing that we've done whether it's just with the candidate or across the uh, you know the senior management team it's it's it, it works do you know that way it's tried and tested now and um i think the you know i think that the, the traditional methods whereby you know i know that companies and they're still there as well whereby um it doesn't matter what level of opportunity you're interviewing at within a company you will do a, you know as some form of psychometric testing but i don't think sometimes that the questioning against the psychometric testing is actually used effectively to allow the candidate to show you know to, to represent themselves fairly because a candidate may well get stressed out over you know the the, the types of questions that are asked and uh, certainly the way we do it is very um yeah it's, it's down to earth to the point specific to manufacturing and um, it seems to be doing well yeah, and, and this doesn't replace gut feeling by any means. What it does, it reaffirms that gut feeling, hopefully. Gut feeling is a massive part in, in, in the selection process, um, you know, but actually if you've got the facts and figures and the black and white to back it up, your decision, and you've got the backing of other members of the senior leadership team because you know uh, everyone will work well together, yeah, it's a win-win. And remember, this is before we even get to a face-to-face interview because what you're then getting is the absolute buy-in from that person that they're not going to waste your time so Scott, after we've got, you know, after we've done the video interview, we, we, you know, everybody's happy to proceed. We would then go to a face to face, and you know, obviously Scott, you yourself, if you were in that position where you were approached by someone, you you went into a company, how would you like to be treated in the basis? Say you're not actually actively looking, you're happy in your current role, right? But someone's approached you because you're doing a very good job, and they're trying to tempt you into their business with, you know say, career progression or, or more money, whatever it might be, or, you know, how how would you like to be treated within a, within a recruitment process to keep you engaged? What, what, what would you need to know? Well, I think and the important factors for me would be, you know, because if, if I'm quite happy where I am and, you know, the, I would need to be comfortable that there's a reason for me wanting to be, you know, putting my head above the parapet, you know, and, and meeting with, you know, a given client to speak, you know, about it. Um, as a person, you know, I, I would need to know the facts and figures and, 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 and the nitty gritty, I guess, of what's there. But also, I think it's important that whoever, you know, and I guess it would be a recruiter if I was working, you know, wasn't looking, I would need to understand, I would need them to be able to comfortably tell me what their client, you know, is, is looking, you know, looking for and to make a self-assessment on whether I'm the right man for, for doing that or not. And I think that the, the key thing is to, to have that information. And the other thing is, on the basis that that's all there, I mean, when I, you know, if I was to go for face-to-face, um, I think the most important factor is you've still got to treat it as an interview. But likewise, you've got to, and what I mean by that is you've got to do your homework, you've got to do your research in the company and make sure that you're, you know, you're, you're being true to yourself um, and that the client knows what, what, what you're all about. One concern or one of the, the things that tends to happen at interviews can be that, you know, people, 
I don't know, act out of character because they don't maybe interview every day, do you know, that way. So they're not, you know, that they, they find themselves in this tough place where they're, they're trying to impress, but it's maybe not natural to them. And actually the best advice is, um, you know, to, to be actually be yourself and, and treat it more as a business meeting. Treat it as you would do on a day-to-day basis rather than actually, you know, treating it as a formal interview. That's certainly my approach. No, I completely agree with you. I think, well, you know, if it was if it was myself and I've got people that I've dealt with in the past to try and tempt them out of businesses and put them into new businesses, it's, you know, it's it's very important that these that, that you know, end of day, and um, this isn't someone actively looking. So you want to be giving them as as much uh, overview as possible. Now, the, the reason why I mention overview is because you don't want to get too detailed into you know confidential information or that sort of stuff. Actually, just you know, end of day, an overview to give them a good idea of where, where the role would fit into the business, where the progression opportunities are, because most times these people will be career-driven. And, and actually, get maybe a factory tour. That's, the, that's an important part, because actually what, what you get in a factory tour is you get, and it's amazing what you can achieve in 10, 15 minutes of walking around the factory, but you do get a sense of the culture. Um, you do get a sense of, you know, simple things like HSE, um, you know, uh, you know for, uh, the products, you know, how how the, the lines are run or whatever that might be. You can pick a lot of good information up. The cleanliness, that's probably a big one for me. You get into a factory, the last thing you want to do um, is see, you know, you like to see nice painted lines, nice walkways, everything not, you know, everything in order. And that, that, that kind of gives you a reassurance as a candidate that actually, do you want to know what? The, the, the companies that are invested in the you know, the the factory, um, you know, the, if they're not investing in the small things, then what chances are they investing in the bigger things and how, you know, that, that will impact their career. So that's, I, I think that's an important part as well. Yeah, and I think, I guess it's relative, isn't it, to the industry? Do you know that way? At the end of the day, you could actually, the role you could be going for is that there's a company that's now secured investment and they're wanting to get their place ship shape. Do you know that way? But actually, yeah. at the moment, that, that you know, they're maybe behind the times, and 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 they recognise that, and and therein lies the opportunity, and and that's you know, I guess that's the beauty of our role, whereby you know, someone that's maybe comfortable in that environment has maybe seen both sides of that coin, um, can actually add significant value to to that opportunity. But likewise, if they've worked in a shiny factory all their lives. Then you know, looking at the you know the industrial situation of, of maybe thirty years ago is maybe not the the best environment for them. So so you're right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's 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 knowing what what you're you're working with, isn't it? You're knowing knowing what you're playing with um, in, in your job and, and and doing it well. Yeah. So I think summarising uh, that particular recruitment uh, minute would be in the basis of you know end of the day you know make sure that we're well, weeding out tire kickers straight away. You know, conducting a good video interview, getting a feel for the candidate, gets a feel for the business, and vice versa. Um, that way, you can progress with somebody you feel comfortable with, uh, without wasting time and money. Uh, secondly, a behaviour report would be very useful, uh, especially within the senior team, um, because what you can actually do is actually line up some really relevant interview questions. Once again, saving time and money, where you can probe right in an interview and make sure it's a good fit for all parties from a culture point of view. Now remember, behaviours can change. So this isn't, you know, as I said to you, it's just used as an interview, an interview technique rather than a hiring decision. And if anyone wants any advice into specific software that we use for video interviewing or specific, uh, you know, the specific um, programs that we use for our behaviour reports, 
please let us know and drop us a line. So it's terry at bonfirerecruitment.com or scott at bonfirerecruitment.com. Just on the point you were saying, we've actually done it, whereby we've actually, the, the client had invested in their own programme for, for recruitment and their own internal set, set up, but they didn't actually have the tool for the for doing the, you know, the, the, the behavioural assessment. So um, that, that, that can be done um, separately. Yeah, I'm more than happy to give them the advice on that. But so that wraps up this week's podcast, Scott. How did you how did you find it broken into three different chunks? Well, it's certainly it's yeah, it's it's good. I think we need to spend a bit more time on making sure we can count to three. But what once we've got that sorted, then uh, no, it's mm-hmm. I think it'll be a lot easier listening on on everyone. I think whereby you can actually listen to the part that's um, important to their world at the at the point in time. So yeah, all good. Yeah. Good. So, so if you're listening to the end of this particular podcast, just remember there's two other podcasts that we'll, we'll discuss. So every week we have three separate podcasts. One, the latest uh, manufacturing news from that previous week. And the second one being a specific hot topic within manufacturing. And then the third podcast being the recruitment advice uh, for, for, for a specific uh, issue or, or area for development um, that myself and Scott will go through. Um, those are cut down into bite-sized chunks of 10, 15, sort of 20 minutes long, depending on the specific topic. So if you haven't listened to them in the past, please uh, check us out on iTunes by searching Manufacturing Ignition Podcast or SoundCloud, and, and you can have a listen there. Uh, we've had a, 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 once again, we've had a, a, a number of emails coming in with some good feedback. Um, we're always looking to improve what we're doing and give some really useful advice. So if anybody's got any any more uh, feedback, that would be great. You can pop us an email, as I said, to terry at bonfirerecruitment.com or scott at bonfirerecruitment.com. Thanks for tuning in this week and we will speak to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturing Ignition podcast. If you've made it this far, we take it that you enjoyed the show. In return, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Subscribe while you're there and we'll catch you for the next episode.